Matthew begins his gospel with the genealogy. Now, granted, that's not always the most exciting reading. It's important, not just to show the earthly line from which Jesus came, but also to make a point about who he is. And that's the reason Matthew included it. Now, we're going to focus at the beginning of the genealogy in verse 1, and then the summary that Matthew gives in verse 17. Because it's in those two verses that we see the reason Matthew included a genealogy at the very beginning of telling the story of Jesus. I'll draw your attention to verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The son of David, the son of Abraham. And now look, if you will, to verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Would you please bow with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we ask for your Holy Spirit to work among us and within us this morning. We confess our need for that work, O oh Lord. For we can read the text, but the application of it, we rely upon your Spirit. So, Lord, we pray that you would take away the familiarity with the Christmas story. And let us hear it again with fresh ears. Move our hearts, O oh Lord. Incline them to your word and to glorify Jesus Christ. And, Father, I pray. I pray that through this time of worship, you would renew our hearts so that we would love you more deeply and serve you more obediently. And Father, may you be glorified even more passionately in our lives. For it is in your name that we pray. Amen. Well, it's no doubt that the Christmas season it's now upon us, isn't it? Even though it began for the stores back in mid-July, for most of us now, it's really we're getting into the swing of things. Now, growing up, there was one of the things that marked kind of the Christmas season. It's when our family received the Sears and Roebuck Wish Book. And I understand that they've actually begun printing that again. Now, the thing that strikes me about that is that now they're printing it for more of a sense of, of nostalgia. Or more of that sense of retro, which reminds me that I'm getting older because all the toys I played with are now retro. Which means they're so old, they're considered new now because of their novelty. Now, one of those retro toys that, I, I, I don't know what happened to it, I wish that mom had kept it. It's one of the few things that she probably didn't, is this upon the screen. The, and revival broke out. The Etch-A-Sketch, uh, when I was looking up pictures of them as I was remembering them, one guy had written on his Etch-A-Sketch, this was my computer as a kid. Remember the Etch-A-Sketch premise was very simple. You had the two knobs there at the bottom, one moved this little line horizontally, the other moved it vertically, which man, I got really good at drawing boxes. But if you were great, man, you could write things, you could draw pictures, but that wasn't the real beauty of the Etch-A-Sketch. Now, the real beauty was this. If you messed up, or you got tired of it, you simply turned it upside down, 
and you shook it and you turned it over and it was a clear slate again. I can't tell you how many times I wish life was like an Etch-a-Sketch. We mess up, it's okay, we'll start again. How many words have we spoken that we've wished, man, I wish I could shake it and it'd be a clean slate? How many actions have we done where we've wished, oh, I wish there was a do-over, a mulligan for this. How many times have we given in to the same sin only to say, Lord, I wish there could be a new beginning. Those are things just on a personal level. When we step back and start to look at what's going on in our world, and we begin to see the devastation of disaster and disease, we long for, for better days, we long for something to shake it up so we could begin again. When we look at the injustice that, that seems to be non-stop, when we look at the sin, the crime, and the things that cause us anger and anxiety, we say, Lord, when? When can there be that new beginning? When can wrongs be set right? You see, that's what we long for. Every one of us in here, there are many things we share in common. Two of them is this. One, every one of us in here have done things, said things, thought things that we wish we could get a do-over for. Those things, majority of the time, are not just mistakes. They're sins. And every one of us in here, as well as every human, have this longing, this deep-down longing for someone that could set things right. That's part of the warp and woof of being a part of fallen humanity, which we all are. That ever since the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve committed the first sin, and God said one day there will come a person from the line of Adam and Eve that will crush with his heel the head of the serpent. We have longed for that. You see that all across literature and in movies. The idea of the, the chosen one who would come and set things right, or the Superman who comes from another world with the power to change and to correct the injustice. Well, the good news of the gospel is this. That person has come. And the gospels begin, particularly Matthew begins, by wanting to show us that the new beginning we long for is found in Jesus Christ. The gospel of Matthew, and particularly starting in this first chapter, wants you and I to know that a new beginning is possible in Jesus Christ. And he starts with this message at the oddest of places. A genealogy. But it's not just any genealogy. This is a genealogy with a very clear purpose. That purpose is started in verse 1. The book of the genealogy or the book of the beginnings or you could even translate that the book of the origins of Jesus Christ. Now the words that in the scripture I believe are not just put there by accident. I believe the Holy Spirit guided the men who wrote the, the scripture to use specific words for specific purposes. And this is a case in point to me. Because the words that are used here echo the Greek version of the Old Testament. Now that's important. By the time Matthew is writing his gospel, the reading of Old Testament Hebrew had fallen by the wayside. Most people spoke Aramaic but read in Greek. So if they wanted to read the Old Testament, it had to be translated into Greek, which it was. It's called the Septuagint. Now the only reason I go into that little tidbit of history is this. The language used in verse 1 is reminiscent of the Greek used in two places in Genesis 
in the Septuagint. You'll see the first one up on the screen. Matthew writes in chapter 1, verse 1, the book of the genealogy. In Genesis 2, 4, where it says, these are the generations. It's the same two Greek words. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In other words, these are the books of the origins of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. There's another place where the same words are used. It's in Genesis chapter 5, verse 1. On the left, Matthew, the book of the genealogy. Chapter 5, verse 1. The book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. See, Matthew is making a point, even at the very beginning. Whereas Genesis tells the origin of how we got where we are now. Matthew is going to begin telling the story of the one who will lead us to where we want to be. Where Genesis tells us the origin of all creation and how that creation fell, Matthew is going to tell us the origin of the new creation and how that new creation will be exactly as God intended it. Whereas Genesis tells us the story of the first man, Adam, through whom sin came into the world, Matthew is telling us that he is going to tell us the story of the new Adam who is named Jesus Christ through whom righteousness will come into the world. He is saying here is the new beginning that you are looking for. Now Matthew doesn't just leave us there because now the next question is, well, how is this new beginning going to take place? Now to answer that question in verse 1 of chapter 1, Matthew gives three titles of Jesus. You'll see them there. Jesus Christ. Christ is not his last name. It is a title. In fact, this is emphasized at the end of verse 17. Notice he says at the very end of that verse, from the deportation to Babylon to Babylon, to the Christ. Christ is a title, a name of Jesus. So we see the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Second title, the son of David. Third title, the son of Abraham. Now those titles are not just honorary. They are not just given because of a accumulated things that Jesus had done. Say, for example, in England when a person is recognized for things that they have done and they are knighted or, or a lady is given the title lady because of things they have done in the past. These are titles that are descriptive of who Jesus is and what he is going to do. Now those two truths, who Jesus is and what he does, are connected. You don't have one without the other. So the revelation of who he is gives us insight into what he does. And who he is and what he does leads us into how he gives us the new beginning that we are longing for. Now notice where he begins in this. He begins by saying that this is the son of David. What does it mean to say that he is the son of David? That's the very first one that he gets at. The genealogy in verses 2 through 16 is laid out to make this very point. That Jesus Christ is not just a descendant of David, but he is the son of David. I draw your attention to verse 17. Now I'm going to reread this verse and I want you to notice what stands out because it is repeated. So all the generations from Abraham to David were what? Okay, now let's read this a little umph. From Abraham to David were. From David to the deportation to Babylon. Generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ. 
What's repeated? 14. Now, why in the world is the number 14 repeated? And some people look at this and they say, well, see, this proves you can't trust the Bible because Matthew's genealogy obviously is not the same as the genealogy in Luke. It's certainly not the same as the genealogy found in 1 Chronicles upon which it is based. But if we are to judge what Matthew has written, we must judge it according to the times that Matthew wrote it. When Matthew was writing this, as well as the other Gospels, it was a perfectly acceptable practice to tailor the material, not change it by lying by any means, but to adapt it to your theological point. That's why there are different stories in different places in the Gospels. As they are making a specific point, they will focus on one story or, or rearrange it to another place. That's what Matthew does with his genealogy. That's why it's so concise. Fourteen generations from Adam to David. Fourteen from David to going away to Babylon. And fourteen from Babylon to the Christ. So that's why it becomes very concise. And that's why there are some differences. But why the number 14? I'm so glad you asked that. The number 14 makes a point about the identity of Jesus. Now, we're going to put on our, our kind of our scholastic cap here for just a second. I don't have to tell that to you all because you all are hungry to know the Word of God and understand why this 14 is used. If you go to the next slide, there was a Jewish practice in writing called gematria. Now, don't be thrown off by that, that it's not a common term. It's really kind of a, a neat way to communicate a name using numbers. This is what gematria is. Gematria is when a letter is assigned a number so that a name can be identified by a number. Very simple. A, what, what number should we assign A? Well, A is the first letter in the alphabet, so 1 is probably a good guess, right? Yeah, makes sense. Let's take the name Abe, A-B-E. A is 1, so what should we give B? 2. Now, E would get 5. It's the fifth letter in the alphabet. So a shorthand way of saying Abe would be 1 plus 2 plus 5, which would equal 8. So 8 could be shorthand for Abe. That's the way they would communicate names at times in a shorthand way called gematria. Well, guess what? That's what they did with David's name. In Hebrew, David's name looks like this, Dawid. Those are three letters that make up David's name. Dalit, Wa, Dalit. That's it, read from right to left. Dalit, Wa, Dalit. Well, guess what we find? Look up here. The Dalit is four. That's the fourth letter in the Hebrew alphabet. Wa is the sixth letter. And then again, Dalit is the four. Four plus six plus four is and they say people don't think anymore that's the point of 14 Matthew wants to emphasize looking at this genealogy by repeating it three times 14 from this 14 14 that everything was pointing to David he wants David to be large because Jesus is the fulfillment of what David started and was supposed to be. He wants us to get in our thinking that Jesus is the son of David who has come to usher in what David never could. Now you have to remember to the, to the Israelite, David was like George Washington. He was the king. He was the model of what a king was supposed to be. Talk about unifying a nation. David did that. Talk about defeating the enemies of Israel. David did that. Talk about bringing in peace. David did that. But here was the problem. David was just a man. 
like you and I, he was a flawed man. So the unity he brought couldn't last. The nation soon broke apart again. The enemies he defeated soon rose up again. The peace he brought was soon fractured by infighting. Much of that infighting brought about by his own sin. So even though David was in many ways an example to look at, he was a flawed example. And the people began looking, I wish that there was a leader like David, but greater than David. We're longing for a leader who when he unifies, it's never broken apart. We're looking for a leader that when he defeats his enemies, they stay defeated. We're looking for a leader that when he brings peace, that peace lasts. And Matthew is announcing, guess what? Jesus Christ has come as that David. He has come to bring reconciliation, to bring the people of God together, to reconcile that which was separated from God. And what God joins together in Jesus Christ is never broken apart. He says that he has come to defeat the enemies of God's people. He has come to crush death, to destroy sin, to do away with sickness. And what Jesus does away with never rears its head again. He has come to bring peace for what is another name of Jesus that we celebrate at Christmas he is the prince of he is saying he is what we long for in David he is the leader that we are looking for now when we think of David and we think of leadership today we often define leadership just by power we live in a power hungry world that doesn't look for power to serve but looks to exercise power to be served but our Jesus the son of David is not like that in the Gospel of Matthew, to emphasize that Jesus' identity, he mentions the son of David nine times. One of them here, actually two of them here. The other two times are made in statements, but the other times that the son of David is mentioned, it's always in a very unusual context. It's in the context of healing. Jesus is walking into Jericho. And as he's making his way into the city, word has gotten around that he's coming into the city. Rumor is swirling that this man from Nazareth can do things no one else has done. Could he be the one? Two men who are blind have heard this and no doubt they have gotten help so that they are seated at the gate when Jesus comes in. They hear the swell of the crowd. The voices are radiating in their ears and they think, we hear, we hear the name Jesus. And so these men start calling out. But listen carefully to what they called out. Son of David, have mercy on us. Son of David, authority and power to reign. Give us mercy. And Jesus does. Matthew records another instance where Jesus is going into Jerusalem. The same thing happens. Two blind men who call out to him, Jesus, son of David, have mercy upon us. Matthew emphasizes the authority and the power of Jesus always with his mercy. The leader we long for that is all-powerful and strong does not use his power to crush those who come to him. Instead, he reaches out in mercy to say, you are no longer defined by your blindness. You are no longer defined by the illness. You are no longer defined by the demon that has oppressed your life. He comes with mercy to heal. J.R.R. Tolkien captures this idea of this merciful, powerful king in his book, The Return of the King. Now, this part I'm about to share is not in the movies. So if you only watch the movies, you're robbing yourself of a lot of the imagery that Tolkien uses. Read the book because Aragorn, the king, after the battle of Minas Tirith, and those of you that are like me that are kind of nerds, you know exactly what I'm talking about, and your heart's beating a little faster right now. 
he sneaks into the city in disguise. He's not ready to regain the throne completely yet. He sneaks into the city, but he doesn't go to where you think the king would go. Tolkien describes the king in disguise going to the hospitals. And he sees the wounded. And the king reaches down and he begins to touch those that are broken. And Tolkien puts it like this. The hands of the king are the hands of a healer. And so shall the rightful king be known. He's drawing an imagery of Jesus, God incarnate. God is, if you were, in disguise, who comes with power and authority. And even though he displays that authority, he comes and he gives mercy with hands of healing. See, but that's where our doubt enters in. Would he give that mercy to me? Who am I? Draw the things I've done in my life mistakes I've made, the sins I've committed, the people I've hurt. Would he give such mercy to me? There's another instance in Matthew where a woman comes to Jesus. She has a request. Jesus, my daughter, is possessed by a demon. Would you have mercy on me, son of David, and heal my daughter? Now, Matthew adds a detail to this. This woman was a Canaanite. If we were in Jesus' time, we would say that word with a frown of Canaanite. She's a descendant from the race that fought against Israel. She's a descendant from the race that were pagans. She's a descendant of the race that corrupted Israel into sin. Who is she? Who is she to ask the son of David for mercy. If anything, the son of David should crush a Canaanite because they are no good. But that is not what Jesus does. Jesus says to her, woman, your daughter is well now. Is there mercy for me? You see, that's the good news of the second title. He is not just the son of David. Look in verse 1. He is the son of Abraham. Now that's more than just a statement about Jesus' Jewish lineage. Clearly, he was Jewish. But this is more than just saying that he came from the line of the Jews. This is a statement about the promises made to Abraham. It is a statement that the promises made to Abraham find their fulfillment in Jesus. Now remember, Abraham, to our knowledge, was a God-fearing man. We know that from the Scripture. He was living in a place called Ur of the Chaldeans when God called him out. Now on the screen, you're going to see, you're going to see Genesis chapter 12. Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I'll show you. Where are we going, God? Just trust me, Abraham. I'll show you when we get there. But now look at the I wills that God says to Abraham in the next two verses. Actually, even in verse 1, I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. Now look at the next line. In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's the promise. Abraham, through you, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. By using the title, Son of Abraham... Matthew is making the point that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of that. 
How will all the families of the earth be blessed by, through, and in Jesus Christ? In fact, Matthew creates a beginning and an end of his gospel with that truth. Keep in mind, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Look at the next slide because it's from Matthew chapter 28, the Great Commission. Look at verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. All the nations will be blessed. All the families will be blessed by faith, coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus shows this in his ministry. There is mercy and power given to the Canaanite woman as well as to the Israelites. You see, the people of God are not defined by their ethnic lineage or national boundaries. It is through Jesus that this promise to all the families of the earth is fulfilled. In Galatians 3, Paul writes that God told Abraham that through Abraham all the nations will be blessed. It's very interesting that the church in 1 Peter is referred to as a holy nation, a holy people made up of all the peoples throughout the world who place their faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. That is why we emphasize international missions. Because the promise to Abraham is fulfilled to all the families in the world that will anyone that will come to faith. So we want them to know that message. Not sharing the gospel is like having the cure for cancer and keeping it to yourself. We need to work so that this message is put out in front of the world and all will hear. And what that means is this. You are included. Your sin is not so great that it has removed you from God's mercy. Your mistakes are not so major that His grace cannot overcome them. That's why He says in 2 Corinthians 5, If anyone is in Christ, He is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. And it comes because of the third title given to Jesus. Christ. The Messiah. The Anointed One. The One who comes to set things that are right. I mentioned earlier how the desire for a, a, a Messiah is rooted in our consciousness. You see this in the titles that are made popular in films. The person is the chosen one to set things right. He is Neo, the new one in the Matrix who comes to correct the wrongs, to set people free. Or he is the Superman from another world who has come. Jesus is the Messiah of God, the one who has come who has the authority and the mercy to do it because he is the son of David. He is the one who makes this offer to all people because he is the son of Abraham, fulfilling the promise. And he is the Messiah that brings in this new beginning. This new beginning has started. The promise of having faith in Jesus Christ is that we become new creations. Our sins against God wiped away. We no longer have to be identified by our past. There's a wonderful passage in 1 Corinthians where Paul gives a litany of sins. Idolatry, immorality, thieves, stealing, greed. And he says, such were some of you. But now, now you are saints. The new beginning we long for is found in Christ. This doesn't mean that here in this world... All, everything is set right, right away. But it means we experience in our lives and in our hearts the newness promised. Throughout this series, if we'll go to the next slide, I've used an image of a sprout coming up out of the ground, ground that has been burned. If you travel 
80 to 90 miles down the road to Gatlinburg, you'll see a scene similar to this. The fires last year were devastating, destroying forests as well as buildings. The amazing thing is, is that the forest destroyed by God's power and grace is starting to regrow. To me, that's an image of the gospel. What sin has burned? Jesus Christ gives new growth in. So will you come to this one who is the son of David, the son of Abraham, the one who is the Christ, the Messiah? I want to ask you to bow your heads with me right now.